0: Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you
1: learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And
2: now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli.
1: Welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli, and I am glad to have you back. You know, this topic of home inspections should not be a boring one. I know on the surface it might appear that way, but you need to know as much as you can about home inspections. Clearly, I think it's obvious that the importance of a home inspection does not need to be stated. In fact, we have a policy that all the uh, clients, all of the investors that we talk to and work with, must order a home inspection when they're purchasing investment property, regardless of what it is, including new construction. But, you know, a lot of people misunderstand what an inspection is supposed to contain, what it should cover and should not cover, what is the breadth or scope of that inspection, How do you even find a good home inspector? Well, these are all good questions and I've jotted down many others that we're going to ask and discuss with my guest today, who will be on here in half a minute. But you know, just real quick here, you know, why should you get a home inspection? Well, there's many reasons off the top of my head, it you know if you're doing due diligence on property and you need to make sure that you are not getting yourself into trouble or purchasing a lemon, it essentially provides you an out. There's always a contingency in every purchase agreement. It's a due diligence period. And within that due diligence period, you can order an inspection. And if it doesn't come back to your satisfaction, which is not a quantifiable description, it's more qualitative than quantitative, But it gives you an out to get out of that contract, get out from under it, and just have your deposit returned if you have a deposit on it. So it gives you a contractually legal way to get out of a contract. So there's that, of course, safety reasons. You want to make sure that you don't have issues at the property like radon or mold or carbon monoxide. So, you know, you want to make sure that there are no safety issues. In addition to that, it may be able to point out if there are any illegally built additions or installations to the property. Maybe there was something that was built, some sort of extension or additional room that does not fall under code, or maybe there was never a permit issued for it. So you should be aware of that. As a side, the seller should and is supposed to disclose that information to you. But, you know, that's another thing is just to reveal any illegal additions. It's a negotiating tool. I mean, if there are issues that need to be resolved or cured, it allows you to negotiate and bargain either a credit or a reduction in the price or just have the seller cure those issues that are red flags or must-be-done items. It gives you the ability to forecast future costs. If you have an idea of the wear and tear of various things in the property then you can forecast what some of your renovations or capital expenditures might be in the future so it's good to know what the shelf life is of various components in the property that inspection could be the deal breaker type of document that you need to say well no this is just too much to fix i don't want to credit on anything so You know, it's just a no-go. Deal's not going to break. Now we never have that situation. I shouldn't say never. Probably one out of every three hundred properties has an inspection come back, and the report is essentially a deal breaker. There's just too much there to wrap your head around. But like I said, it's it's very rare that that actually comes up. So other than that, you know, the final thing. But this is certainly not the last thing. uh, But the final thing that I want to mention here is insurance. I mean. No insurance company will insure a property if there are various issues there, so it's basically like a clean bill of health, and uh, as long as the uh, inspection passes through your criteria and the insurance company's criteria, they're not going to have a problem issuing property insurance or hazard insurance on the property. And keep in mind, they're not looking for the condition per se as much as seeing if there are certain conditions that are found at that property For example, the presence of certain types of mold or the lack of a certification for wind mitigation. And so this is obviously going to be state-specific. But those are some of the things that might be issues for insurance companies to issue hazard insurance on your property. So there's many reasons to have a property inspection done. So it's not just for your protection and for you to know what you're getting into or what you're acquiring. So with that, let us get to our guests, actually two guests today, and talk about inspections and what they are and what you need to know about them and how to pick an inspector, et cetera, et cetera. It's my pleasure to welcome two guys to the show. First, one of our investment counselors, Nate Hall is here. Nate, welcome back. Thank you, Marco. And kind of a special guest, if you will, Mark Rojek, and he is the owner of Rojek home services in the Chicago area. So he services the Chicagoland market. And Mark, welcome to the show. This is your first time. It is. Thanks for having me, Marco. Well, it's great to have you on. We have an interesting topic today. It's about inspections, and I don't know what I'm going to call this podcast episode yet. But uh, let's start off with you basically introducing yourself. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your company and, you know, the services you provide, so that way we can have a little context into this uh, conversation about home inspections.
0: All right. Thanks. My name is Mark Rojek with Rojek Home Services. I am an Illinois state licensed home inspector. I've been doing this for other people for about five years now, but all together in the industry for about 20 years. Um, I've done all aspects of commercial residential from builds, build outs to all the different types of inspections that are involved. Um, I primarily focus on residential real estate right now as well as working with a few of the large banks and renovation lenders to do investor type inspections for lending that they do as well as verifying work that's going to be done for purchases of some of these distressed properties just making sure that the budgets and the ambitions and dreams of some of these clients are realistic with the condition of the house as
1: it sits. Good stuff, Mark. So, you know, I I don't want people to think that this topic is boring. I mean, I'm sure it's not exciting to a lot of people because we're talking about home or property inspections, but the reality is it is important and it's part of everybody's due diligence. In fact, you know, Nate will tell you as well that we kind of have an internal policy or a rule here that we won't work with any clients that don't actually order home inspections on the investment properties that they purchase. We can't force anybody to do it, but we insist that they get a home inspection, even if it's new construction. And you would think that a new construction property probably doesn't need a home inspection because it's brand new, there's no wear and tear, you know, no one's ever lived in it. But the reality is it's, it's an important part of everybody's due diligence and you should always have a home inspection. And the cost is not very high either. You know, it, think of it almost like an insurance policy. You're having someone inspect a property from top to bottom to make sure that everything is in order, and that's basically what I think I'd like to unpack with the two of you guys here today. Both Nate and I coming at it from an investor's perspective, and maybe two slightly different perspectives. Nate being on the front line, talking to investors all the time. You know, he gets a lot of feedback and questions about it, and, and I'm sure he, you know, he reviews these inspections and reports with a lot of people. But I'm thinking maybe the best place to start, and Nate, you can jump in anytime you'd like, but kind of, I like to work from the general to the more specific, but when it comes to looking for or choosing an inspector or an inspection company, what do you guys have to say or suggest or recommend in terms of finding an inspector, someone who is qualified and reliable, and then we'll kind of take that one step further and maybe ask, you know, is there a checklist of items that you want to see or have in that search in finding an inspector? So I'll throw it to any one of you guys, and we'll just start there.
0: As far as for me, the top things that I'm going to be looking for when looking for an inspector, because I bought properties that I've used other inspectors for just because I didn't want the bias of myself going in there and looking at things uh, with an unfair eye towards what would be in a perfect world versus what is realistic for that transaction. It's going to be, honestly, review services, Google, Yelp, uh, Zillow. I want to know, have other people used these inspectors and have they had good feedback and not just, you know, five-star reviews, five-star reviews are cute, but if there's no words associating with it, there's obviously services you can pay to do things like that for you. So that's a good jumping off point. And then getting a sample report, get a copy of a sample report. So, you know, is it something that you'll even be able to decipher because If it comes across and it's basically a disorganized mess or in a foreign language it doesn't do you any good as the buyer to understand any part of what's going on with that house and there's a very high
1: probability of you missing something important yeah i want to come back to the the report thing in a few minutes here because i actually have a very specific question about that aside from nate having any you know comment on this i'm curious about something i mean before the internet how would someone go about doing their due diligence when yelp didn't exist or you know google reviews or anything else for that matter i mean where would you turn to would you talk to references i don't know if i put a lot of weight in references either because i would think that there isn't a company out there that's going to provide you references that aren't glowing right correct it's funny that you know how much the internet has changed even as you mentioned
0: for report writing has made a gigantic difference but for references you really would call, you know, you know, somebody that's a realtor, you'd call them and say, Hey, who do you use? But that's not telling you anything about, it's not giving you a guarantee of the quality of work. That's actually going to get done because there are several realtors that I work with that. I don't do their regular clients inspections. I only do their family and friends because they don't want to deal with a report that comes up with too many things. They'd rather use a different inspector that isn't going to find as much as going to make their job harder. Now, Morally, ethically, that's their issue to deal with. I just do the inspections that I'm given. I treat every house exactly the same because I don't know what's important to my client. I'd rather give them all the information, let them sort it out, ask questions as they have them, and do my best to help educate them on the property.
1: Okay, so if I was looking for an inspector or an inspection company, and I'm a new client, I'm a new investor, what would that so-called checklist be of items or things that I would need or want to look for in making my selection?
0: As far as for a good inspector right now, they're going to be utilizing one of the major software. So you're going to look at HomeGage is is good, Uh, Spectora. There's Tap Inspect is okay. Um, There's a few different other ones that are out there. I use Spectora. I feel like it's the most user-friendly, the easiest way to develop a picture that clearly helps the client understand what's important versus what isn't. Not that it's not important, but it's not an A1 priority. And then also details, where are these problems? Because just a broad statement saying house needs ground fault protected outlets. Okay. That's fine. But identifying what areas, what rooms, where do these things need to go? So you can develop a game plan for is this something that I need 30 outlets for or I need two outlets? Is this a simple job? Is this a long job? Because especially when it comes to credits, repairs, things like that, you got to be able to budget. If you're spending X of our dollars on this house, how much is the process going to take to
1: get it up to livable and up to what you're looking for? What about things like licensing? Is licensing important? Is it critical? What kind of license? And this might actually change state by state because if I am not mistaken, I believe there are some states that don't require a license for home inspection. I'm not sure about that. That's correct. So there's, I don't know the exact count.
0: Uh, I'm in Illinois. Illinois is a licensed state. It does require taking a state test, but as of January 1st, just got significantly harder to do. It's requiring a little bit more skills and verification of those skills in order to get that license, as well as There's also international associations such as InterNACHI, which is the International Association of Certified Home Inspectors. That type of group, when you see that seal on a website or on a business card, they at a bare minimum verify that the inspector is doing 24 hours of validated continuing education every year. So they're making sure that this inspector didn't get licensed in 1984 and has never done any sort of updated education since. So those type of things are important as well. But that license, it it is important. Someone is verifying that that inspector is knowledgeable, understands the subject matter, at at least at a basic level, and is insured. Because an inspector is a human being. No one's perfect 100% of the time. It's impossible. Making sure that they have the means via insurance or other bonds or things, depending on your state. In order to cover if something does happen, if they damage something during the inspection, if something was overlooked that was required to be reported on by your state SOP, those are very important things. A fly-by-night, non-licensed operator who, you know, has been, as they say, in construction uh, for a lot of years, which may have been a painter, may have been a drywaller, or may have been a licensed electrician. You don't know. It just, the license takes that guessing game out of it a little bit, knowing that at least somebody has looked into their background.
1: Okay, so we're talking about licensing specific to home inspectors, and we're talking about ratings and reviews, and we're talking about length or time in business as an inspector. We are talking about possibly even looking at references or reviewing references that are provided. Okay, so that's a pretty good checklist. I would think that for most people, that's enough. I don't know what you could do beyond that. So... Is there anything else you want to add to that? I think that's probably as comprehensive as you can get with inspectors. No, I think
0: that's about, you're right. I think that beyond that and checking with their dental records, I don't think you have much else there. Right,
2: (laughs) okay. All right. Um, Yeah, and if Marco, I can chime in here for just a second. You know, depending on where you're investing, right, whether it's in Illinois or it's Tennessee or, you know, if you're investing in Kansas City, every partner that we have, right, every broker partner that we have, you know, step one for investors, they can certainly point you in the name of a reputable company. So you can, you can, yes, you can go on Google. Yes, you can do all the things that the internet is designed and is wonderful to do. The partners that we have who've been in the markets for 15, 20 years can tell you a reputable company versus a non-reputable company for inspection. So, you know, if you're buying a piece of real estate and you're working with me and we're investing somewhere, you know, my first step is always, who does our partner recommend? And again, inspector is typically not going to be biased, right? They're going to be, you know, working for you as the buyer. That's a good place to start as well, on top of your own search on Google or Yelp or whatever that might be.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. So let's kind of dive into more of the tactical stuff here. In terms of inspection reports, one thing I've noticed across the board, like meaning from market to market, inspector to, to inspector, is they rarely look the same. You know, they are so different. There's no standardized template or model like there is in the lending world where you have, you know, a HUD statement or a settlement statement or whatever, you know. There are documents that have been standardized and they all look the same. The information changes, the data changes, but but you know exactly what to look for and where to find it. But I haven't seen that in the world of inspections and inspectors, so... I mean, what is a good or a bad inspection format or model? What should our expectations be? I guess let's just start with that because I think before we get into the nuts and bolts of what's in the inspection, I'd like to kind of understand the inspection report a little better.
0: I think with any inspection report, regardless of the style, because it is hard to standardize from market to market because there's things that are important in coastal areas that are not in you know the middle of Arizona and things that are important in the Midwest that are not in Florida. So different market-specific ideas of the layout is going to happen. But most inspectors, it seems, at least all the reports that I've read, which I do read quite a bit, just trying to keep up and keep my template where it needs to be, typically in the beginning, we'll explain either through a video link or some sort of written legend to explain, hey, here's what this report is for. Here's what it explains. Here's what it doesn't explain. So there's going to be exclusions. You know, it's not technically exhaustive. We're not peeling the drywall off and looking behind everything. There is no way to get behind certain areas. And setting that expectation right off the bat is important. Um, But here's the things we are going to look at, you know, structure. We're going to look at the roofing. We're going to look at all these different sections and clearly label them so you have a good understanding of what that report is and what it isn't.
1: I think one of the things that I've noticed as well is that you'll never have a completely comprehensive inspection. You know, an inspector can spend four hours, even a full day at a property and check a lot of things from, you know, from the foundation all the way up to the roof. But, you know, it it becomes impractical at some point as far as how much you can actually check and inspect. So what is reasonable or what should be the expectation of what is covered in a typical property or home inspection report?
0: My general thought process on that is, if it's accessible and visible without doing some sort of damage, it should be in that report. If it's not 100% perfect where it needs to be, so that being said, we're not going to we're not going to document every single nick or in the drywall or a little spot of interior peeling paint unless it's a potential for a lead-based issue that's going to be documented. That hey, this is an older home. The potentials there for a lead paint you may want to make sure we, we focus on these areas but anything that's accessible which accessible is a, a tough term there's a lot of things that can be barriers to accessibility such as weather depending on what the weather conditions are accessing a roof you know in january in chicago is potentially detrimental it's going to be hard to do but there's different tools you can use nothing beats the eyes And hands actually getting on that roof and looking at it, in my opinion. A drone, a pole camera, those things are nice tools, but they don't beat that. But sometimes you just can't get to it. Another issue, especially with investment properties, is tenant belongings. So if there's a high amount of belongings piled up in different areas, such as blocking the attic access, blocking the flooring in different rooms, that does put a hindrance on my ability to report on all the details. But those type of things are where you know, documenting in the report saying, hey, we didn't get a look at this area because of X, Y, or Z is very important. So it gives the client the ability to decide which direction they want to go. You know, do they want to request the seller? Hey, can you have them clean out this room? Because sometimes tenants are present, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're cooperative to pull that stuff out. Sometimes they're not. And the same for a regular residential transaction. We don't always have access to everything based on your furniture, your lifestyle. That's just,
1: it's just the reality of the situation. Not every house is vacant. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so maybe let's kind of dive into your model. I have a follow-up question to that, but I think it's probably more appropriate if we talk about the different categorizations as you have them. And I like how you've categorized what you look at and inspect in terms of safety items, structural items, and service call related items. I really like how you've broken this down, Uh, so I'm not going to steal any of your thunder. Why don't you go over each of those three, maybe describe or or define what those are, and then let's kind of dive into some examples or what they might cover. Sure. So my primary report is going to be thorough. It's going to cover everything, the
0: typical sections you would want to know about the house. You know, roofing, the grounds, the exterior, heating, cooling, plumbing, the typical things. But for me, and what I try to explain to my clients is especially with an investor client that, you know, an investor client's not as concerned with a small nick in the drywall or a missing door stop or things like that, but they are concerned with what I call my three hot button issues, which is safety, structural, and service calls, as you mentioned. Those are areas where you want to address them in a priority fashion. So, you know, safety things, you know, ground fault protection, handrails, signs of mold, things like that, structural. Is pretty obvious from there. If the house is leaning, one, why is it leaning? And two, how do we stop it from getting worse? Because those are big ticket items. Those are big dollar figures in order to fix that underpinning. You know, it could be twenty to $30,000 for one section of wall. So that's a big hit in your budget. And then service calls. Service calls seem stupid and people laugh when I point them out, but little things turn to big things. And it is much easier to do a service call type of repair prior to closing or at closing, bundle them all together than to get killed throughout the year for, you know, service calls from your management company or from your contractors going out there for, okay, a wobbling toilet. And then you got potential for leaks and mold. And then old leaks that are now starting to leak again, damaged doors where people have to yank on them. That's going to break the doors. It's going to cause more service calls, and it's just going to eat away at your net profit.
1: That's a big point that you're bringing up because, Even an item that is inexpensive, it could be a $10 gasket or, you know, an S-trap or whatever, a wax ring on a toilet. I mean, these are low-cost items. But the fact that there's a disruption to the tenant, there's possibly an interruption with a phone call or an email to you, the property manager having to dispatch, you know, one of their maintenance people and then, you know, billing you for that, Uh, Repair plus, you know, the extra ten percent or fifteen percent, whatever they charge for that service call, starts to add up if you have multiple items like that over the course of a year. So, dealing with all those service call items up front, just batching them and knocking them out from the beginning, will save time and money and possibly a little bit of aggravation for everybody over time. So, I think that's huge, and most people don't even talk about that kind of stuff.
0: You don't realize when you you listen to some of the management companies explain how their their services work, but even the individual investor taking time out of your day to go and deal with a, you know, leaking wax ring that could have been corrected when somebody was out there doing the turn. You could have fixed the wax ring and a few other items to avoid having to go back in there. Because as you mentioned, trying to coordinate the tenant schedule, the contractor schedule, trying to get everybody in there and God forbid, they don't have the right parts or need to come back for a second call. This just, adds up and adds up and it it gets expensive very quickly for what, like you said, a wax ring, a wax ring is less than $10, you know, and then an hour of labor and that can avoid further problems. But once that is leaking, especially if you have a crawl space that no one's going into beneath it, you don't know what's leaking down there and you don't know the issues that are forming because of that, that can cause
1: significantly bigger things down the road for you. So I don't know if you can answer this question, but maybe Nate has some comments on this. When that inspection report comes back and you have you know, various things in there, often the majority of them are minor things, however you want to define minor, but they're not necessarily major things like structural foundation-related roof or whatnot. How are those typically dealt with between the prospective buyer slash investor and the homeowner? Is there kind of a, I'll call it a best practices, but really just a way to handle or an expectation of who should be responsible for curing what in that inspection report, if it's something that even needs to be cured?
2: Yeah, I'll chime in here on that, Marco. So it's a great question. I think for most clients that I work with, I think what a, a good inspection does is does give you some wiggle room for going back to the seller and you know doing some negotiation where let's say that you know there are some things on there that may cost $1,000 or $2,000 you know most of the time that's going to be handled by the seller or there's some wiggle room for maybe a um you know a credit at at close but i love what mark just said if there let's say there is five hundred or a thousand dollars worth of you know service work that needs to be done on the property by all means I would handle that up front to negate any issues that that first year of that hold. So again to to circle back around if there is what I call quote, red flag issues. That's what I call it. It's not like an industry term, but a red flag issue is let's say there's like a major mechanical that needs to be looked at or something like that. I absolutely will work with my client and go back to the seller and see what we can work out in terms of getting something majorly repaired prior to close.
0: I kind of laugh because, you know, investor clients and and market clients are a little bit different, but I try to explain based on what needs to be repaired, whether you in my personal opinion, I would be, and this is more of an attorney and an agent question, but when people ask me directly my opinion on it, if the item has any latitude in how the repair can be done, I usually, if possible, try to get a reasonable credit only because in my experience and not saying anything bad about these sellers, they're not looking to put any extra money into a house that they're getting rid of. I understand I'd be in the same position, but I have seen, you know, after these negotiations get a little bit tense, I have seen people fix a handrail in a $600,000 house with a length of two by four that they put up on the wall in this beautiful home because it's inch and a half. It's graspable. It meets the standard. It technically covers it, but it's not anything anybody would have ever put in their own house. They were just upset about how the negotiations went. They didn't want to give those things in. So when there's latitude about how you can repair things, you know, maybe not matching the flooring perfectly when they have to match a, a broken tile or things like that. Those are the things that I'm, a little more cognizant if you have the ability, the manpower or the ability yourself to do the repair, I would try to take the credit for it because you may be able to do it cheaper and you're going to do it in a way that makes you happy. Whereas if the furnace didn't work, it's cut and dry. You have a licensed HVAC contractor. They're going to either make it work or replace it in a licensed fashion. Their license and insurance is on it. Same thing with most electrical issues. You're going to have a licensed contractor doing it. It's either correct or it's not. There is no wiggle room in that so those things are things that I more look for them to do and get
1: those repaired for you. So you're suggesting take a credit and just have someone do the work for you and take the responsibility for it rather than having the seller do whatever they might want to do, right?
0: It's based dependent on what the thing is. Like I said, if there's if it's an a correct or not correct issue, so, you know, the furnace does not turn on, okay? And you require that a licensed heating contractor comes in there to repair it. And a licensed heating contractor signs off and says, yes, it's repaired. It's repaired in a way that I'm comfortable putting my name on. And here's a copy of the invoice saying that I paid this professional to do it. Sure. But if there's some more minor things that are more of a nuisance or um, latitude for the seller to do their own type of repair, that might not be up to the standards you're looking for, or that you want for your tenants. So they take pride in your property, take care of your property better personally for me, and this is more of the attorney and the agent to help you with it. But personally for me, In my experience, my own rentals, if you have the know-how, just take it for yourself. Now, don't end up getting screwed by your contractors. You don't want to be subbing everything out. But if you have the ability and you have a general understanding of what it's going to cost, that's
1: probably the direction I would want to go when I have the option. Got it. So I taking this one step further, your safety, structural, and service call items are categorical and they're great. I like how you've divided that up. When I look at things individually on, a, on an inspection report, this is something I've talked about for years, and I would assume that our investment counselors here have adopted this to some degree, but I've said many times that I like to look at every item that is brought to my attention in an inspection report and label them as either must be done, should be done, or could be done, because the reality is There's always going to be stuff in an inspection report, even in a home that you would consider to be in perfect condition. I'm going to be certainly concerned about things that must be done. I mean, those are, call them red flags, if you will. But those are the first things I look at, and those are the things that must be addressed. Then there's potentially a list of things that should be done, which will not affect the lifespan or the performance of the property or the rentability, but they are things that would be nice to have done would improve the property but it's not a a red flag urgent type of item but they still should be done i mean looking at it from you know is this a reasonable request it should be done and then everything else you know call them ticky tacky items are the things that could be done a crack in the wall that needs to just have some repainting or loose doorknob whatever it may be so Mark, what do you think of that model that I have of breaking things down as must be done, should be done, could be done?
0: Marco, you're spot on basically for the way my reports are, the way mine are done, and the way a lot of people that utilize similar softwares are done. And Nate's seen this before. I break it down. My reports, uh, the full report is broken into three categories, which is, like you said, must be done, which is my defect slash safety concern, which are obvious safety issues, big ticket items, things that, hey, this is, you know, structural concerns. Hey, we got to, you got to get a look at this because this is a potential for a big problem. So those I label those red. Those are, hey, A1 priority. You may not fix them, but you got to know that this is what's going on and it's not functioning correctly. Recommendations is my other category, which just should be done. These are things that, you know, whether you do it or the seller does it, they're things that you want to take care of before they turn into a bigger problem. Um, they may not seem like a big deal, but there's a reason I put them on that list. That's the most the biggest category, my bread and butter, is going to be in recommendations. Those are going to be areas that you may not realize are going to turn into a bigger problem. And it's my job to make sure you know these aren't the glaring, hey, uh, the garage door is falling off the track. I could see it laying half on top of the car. These are things that you may not think about as a standard consumer that I'm there to make sure you understand. And then the maintenance or FYI items, which is your could be done. Those are the blue items that I, I, I categorize as small things that in my opinion, should still probably be taken care of because the house isn't 100% perfect. But you could do them at your convenience, or choose to never do them. No one's going to arrest you if you don't fix them. But you know, it might seem ticky-tacky sometimes, but you know, missing doorstops—it seems so simple. But once those doorstops are missing, and someone puts a door handle through the drywall, now you got a fist size hole. Then you gotta pay somebody to patch, to paint, to do different things. Those are repairs that turn into bigger problems. So I still label them blue, but I make sure, hey, just keep those in mind. If you're there, you're coming to do an air filter change. You're coming to talk to the tenant about something. You can knock out a couple of those repairs in a few minutes with basic hand tools and basic knowledge and prevent something where it does
1: result in a service call. So the missing doorstop is according to what you're saying, but according to me, should be done item or maybe a must be done item. Where do they fall under your categorization of safety, structural, or service call? Is that a service call item?
0: That's more of a service call. Yeah, that's a maintenance or FYI item. It's a basic item. It's it's small. I get it. And a lot of people laugh about me putting just, I put a general statement that if you're missing multiple door stops, I just put a general statement in there. You know, pay attention to these little things. Because again, what could be fixed with a single Phillips head screw in about five minutes of time yields a bigger problem when somebody puts a door handle through the drywall And you've got to pay somebody to stand there while they watch spackle dry and then paint in order to make it get back to a condition that you want to have it in.
1: Okay. So sometimes there are things that come up in an inspection report that are beyond your core competency or, you know, the scope of work of what the inspection report is about or for, at what point should your client or the buyer call in a new professional or expert to do an inspection of some other kind to essentially complement or add to what you're doing with the I don't know if I should call it a general home inspection but whatever you know inspection is being done by you. I
0: love when uh, I come across things that I just no matter how many times I've done these and I do a, a fair number of inspections per year there's always going to be things that I come across that, homeowner does or a unprepared contractor does and you just stare at it you try to figure out I get what you're trying to do but why why did you do it this way and there's always going to be updates in technology and changes and things but if there's something that's that far out of the scope of understanding for me of why this thing is this way or what is it going to cost to get it back to the way it should be my inspection will always document and request that it be evaluated by a you know, licensed electrician, licensed plumber, licensed structural foundation expert, things like that. I document those things in there and recommend further evaluation of that specific item because even no matter how much you try to keep up, there's always new products on the market. There's always new installation guides. There's all these different things. A smartphone is a tremendous help versus what it was like for an inspector 20 years ago to be able to quickly look at an installation guide for a specific furnace or a specific appliance or whatever. But there is no beating a technical expert in that area. And I'm not ashamed to say that if I come across something and it just does not make sense, I'm absolutely going to refer it out to somebody else and tell you, hey, you need to talk to an electrician about this. This is not the way it should be. Look into it. It might be the way it could be, but I would want a person that has extensive experience just working on that specific thing to
1: tell you definitively that this isn't going to be a problem. Okay. So my next question, probably one of my last questions here is really just about age and what might be acceptable. So when I refer to mechanicals of a property, I basically break everything down in my mind as either they're mechanical or it's cosmetic. And when I talk about mechanicals, I'm talking about the hot water tank, HVAC system, anything else that might be technically and specifically mechanical and the roof. I just kind of lump that all together roof and mechanicals, and then everything else I just referred to as cosmetic, because they're typically pretty easy to replace or repair. But when you're determining age of the roof and other mechanical items, is there a minimum acceptable lifespan? And I know this might probably change from person to person. It might be subjective to some degree, but if I probably talk to different inspectors, they might say, well, you know, what's acceptable is different And that may be true with the the client as well, the investor. They might be saying, well, a 10-year lifespan on a roof is acceptable, whereas someone else might say it has to be 15, and someone else might say five. So I don't know if there's a, a right answer to this question, but what would you say about age and what's acceptable? So it's really up to the individual, but the way I report it is this.
0: The way I talk to my clients about it is typically, for me, furnaces and heating components that are inside the house typically going with anticipate about 25 years out of them. Now, some get more, some get less, but it's a good indication of being able to budget for your capital improvement plan. as uh, so it's about 25 years. It depends on the cleanliness of the individual that lives there, different factors, but that's a good round number. For exterior heating and cooling components, such as condensers and heat exchangers, things like that, or uh, I'm sorry, heat pumps, you may want to think more towards that 20-year range, especially in this area of the country where we have extreme temperature swings. You know, One day it's 50 degrees, the next day it's negative five. That just beats up the components on the exterior of the house. Sun exposure, things like that are going to wear those components quicker. And then water heaters, typically on the high side, you're going to get about 15 years. Now, not to say there's not exceptions to the rules. I've seen them still functioning from the mid-80s on well water, but that doesn't mean they're functioning well, and it's not typical. So- you, know, you start budgeting around that year 15, you got you can't be surprised that it goes out. That's going to be realistic. For the roofs, roofs are tricky because, again, weather plays a huge factor in it. Amount of sunlight, so is there a lot of foliage around there? Is it covered? Does it have an opportunity to dry all the way? There's a lot of factors there. But typically what I'm looking for is being able to tell my clients, at a minimum, can you get at least five more years out of this? A three-tab roof, which you're not seeing many being installed anymore, typically in this area of the country, you're realistically getting about 15 to 18 years out of them. And then when you go to an architectural shingle, 25 to 28 years is about where you're going to be at. Even though they have a 40 and 50 year lifetime warranties that they put on that, that's not, if you read the the terms of that warranty, it's not all it's cracked up to be. So it doesn't mean that at year, you know, on a 40 year roof at year 39, you can't call up and Owens Corning or anybody else is going to come out and give you a brand new roof. So Having that realistic understanding of
1: it based on the conditions that I see are going to be helpful to determine that. This is kind of a tangent question, but I never thought about it until I just heard you mention warranty. Are those home warranties worth purchasing? To a large degree, I just see them as a ripoff, but is there any value in those things it really depends on the individual company. I do
0: put a five-year roof leak warranty on anything that I inspect that comes with the inspection. There is no extra charge for it, as well as a ninety-day warranty on all the things that I was supposed to inspect. That it doesn't mean that if I tell you you've got a problem, you know, a leak with your water heater, you can't call in on day three after you close and say you need a new water heater because they're going to ask to see the inspection report. Um, I have had clients ask for things like that. There are some warranty companies that are better than others. Some that have you know, a one page size 12 font, here's the terms, here's what it is. And there's other ones that have 50 page size eight booklet of all the reasons why they're not going to cover what you're looking for. So you do need to do your due diligence. If you're going to be looking into one of these warranty programs and you have specific things in mind that you've seen on this house that aren't looking that great to you, make sure it's covered before you spend that money because otherwise you're right. You are just flushing it down the toilet. Not only the cost of that, the warranty, but then you have to pay for that service call, typically about a 100 bucks for them to come out and then tell you that, yeah, no, this isn't going to be covered by your warranty, but as long as we're here we're willing to do it, and in my experience several of those contractors are not paid, white as great, or have to give a cut to the warranty company so if they do offer you services which you're kind of obligated at that point to try to utilize just to get it done quickly, they're typically at a pretty high price compared to finding a
1: contractor on your own and getting somebody local to do that repair. Okay. Possibly my last question that I can think of at the moment is this. How often do you have investors or clients send you back to the property after the inspection is done and there has been a list of items that are being repaired or cured? So once that stuff is supposedly done, fixed, cured, whatever, they have you go back and just verify that those items have been done.
0: Typically, a re-inspection is pretty rare. It does happen sometimes for the out-of-state investors that are buying in this market just because they don't have eyes on the property, but most of them are relying on their agent or representative and their attorney to obtain either a visual verification that the work was done, maybe on their final walkthrough, and or invoices from licensed contractors to show that, hey, this was completed at this location. And then they do kind of a follow-up on their final walkthrough. But typically, it's a very small percentage that send me back for reinspection, And it's mostly out of state or people that just have zero technical
1: skills as far as understanding was this repair done correctly. What would your recommendation be for someone who is purchasing an investment property out of state? W- would you recommend that they have you go back or just their... Some other representative, let's just call it that.
0: Um, it really depends on the repairs that they were requesting. If they're, you know, simple things of, that a normal person can go in and see, such as, you know, blown window seals or, you know, a door doesn't open or things that they can observe without technical skills, just have the person that's doing your final walkthrough for you. Just verify those items were taken care of and they can do the check sheet. It's going to save you money. And that shouldn't be a big deal. But if it's an item, especially things that are inside of an electrical panel or things that are up inside the attic that a typical person's not going to be able to access and verify. And if you have not received photographic and invoice documentation from the seller and their contractors, I would definitely recommend because it's not beyond the realm of possibility that somebody tells you that they did a repair. And even if they meant to do it, they may have told their contractor to do it. Things do occasionally get overlooked. And the last thing you want to do is try to track that person down after you've already given them your money and closed on the property to try to get them to do something about it.
1: Right. Good stuff. So I'll throw this out to both of you guys. What should I have asked you that I didn't? Uh, Are there any other questions that we didn't cover that we should bring up now?
2: Real quick on my end, uh, I want to circle back around real quick uh, on CapEx item, capital expansion items. And Mark, just get your opinion on this. I I may have missed this for some reason. Electrical panel, you know, electrical and then plumbing. How often are you doing, you know, scopes or hiring someone you have to do a scope for investors? And in terms of age, we were talking about age of roofs and age of HVACs and things like that. Is there a particular age you look at for a panel or plumbing, plumbing pipes?
0: Typically, in this area at least, our primary New construction, there are some variables in different areas, but our primary new construction waste pipe is going to be PVC. So you don't have a whole lot of life expectancy issues with that. Older homes in the city proper and some of the older areas are going to be cast iron. Those are going to be things you want to make sure you look at. Areas with mature trees, you could be at a point, I've had several properties that I've had annual service contracts to have the main sewer line rotted out because again, that service call thing, if I can pre-plan somebody going in there with a four-inch cutter head to run through that sewer line to make sure I don't have problems. It prevents that Thanksgiving morning, toilet back up, flooding out their house, damaging the flooring and all their belongings and me having to, to deal with that service call and those issues um, over something that's preventable. As far as the electrical panels and things like that, it really depends on the technology. Typically, the 30, 40, 50-year-old panel, you're going to want to look at. It doesn't mean you have to change it out. It just, you want to look at that technology. There's several brands of panels that have developed problems over time that I would identify on that initial inspection report that, hey, this is a problematic panel, there's varying opinions on it, it's not illegal, but you're gonna to wanna to look at this as potentially a service call or a problem in the future. That again, if you lose a phase or you have a problem where half the panel shorts out or you have an issue with it, getting an electrician to come out there at you know midnight on a January night to get that heat running again in the house and get things functioning is gonna be significantly more expensive than avoiding those problems early. Getting those taken care of. But the only other thing that I really focus on with the plumbing, I guess, would be the supply lines for galvanized plumbing. Galvanized is common in the older areas of the city here and the older suburbs. And the problem with that is that it builds with corrosion. It gets smaller and smaller over the years. And you should always anticipate at some point you're going to end up having to replace it with copper or with some areas are going with PEX and some other products. But Those are things that are going to yield low water flows on that inspection that we're going to see right away. It doesn't mean it's not going to continue to build. And it is something like you talked about, a capital expenditure you should plan on in the future. Galvanized is not going to last forever as far as being a acceptable water supply product. So you want to budget at some point, either you're going to have to do sections of it or you're going to have to do repairs. But typically when you do a section, you usually end up loosening a different area So normally, once you get a plumber in there, if he's already there with the copper, a typical, you know, three, one and a half or three, two bedroom, three, two house, you're going to want to probably get as much of it switched out as you can to avoid those
1: problems. Can the same be said? Got it. Thank you. Sorry. Go ahead, Nate. Nope. I was just saying
2: thank you for the answers.
1: So uh, that was plumbing. Can the same be said for electrical wiring rather than copper, the old, what is it called? Cap, uh, cap and tubing or something like that. The very old electrical system.
0: Well, old knob and tube wiring is not insurable for most major companies. And I've had clients that are, you know, they'll tell me, hey, you know, we just don't, uh, we just won't mention it. Well, the problem is you don't mention it. It's in the inspection report, which is I have to maintain a copy of it. In in this state, I have to maintain a copy of it. So if you knew about it, the house does have a fire. God forbid somebody gets hurt or not, but there is a loss that insurance company. And they found out that you knew about it the whole time and just chose not to fix it. That's a big problem potentially for you. Normal wiring, though, copper wiring, is typically not going to be an issue. There are areas around here from the mid-70s where we were using some aluminum wiring. Solid-strand aluminum wiring would be documented on that inspection report if anywhere that it was found visible. Those are That's a problem in the fact that it heats up over time and shrinks and expands and eventually starts to break apart inside, which can cause arcing and potential for fires. So that's another thing that would come up on that safety issue. If I found any of that in any of the panel or sub panels, I would make sure that's documented. And if it were me, I would try to get that removed or remediated with, there's a couple different connectors and a couple different solutions you can use, try to make it a little more safe.
1: Interesting. Okay. Good stuff. Nate, any final comments um, before we wrap it up here?
2: Nothing am I on my end. This is great.
1: Okay. Mark, any final comments before uh, you tell our listeners how they can find you?
0: No, I think it was uh, important and I value... Your guys's feedback too, from your side of it, because as an inspector, you know we're trying to report everything in a way that is not alarming to people. Where because no house is going to be perfect. I don't care which which new construction where you go, no house is ever going to be perfect. It's just helping people understand what they're buying. It doesn't mean you can't buy it. It doesn't mean you have to buy it. But hey, have a good understanding. This is your due diligence. Look at this, and help it develop a budget to figure out what's my long-term repairs that should be done to this house and what are things I want to really focus on. Um, So any feedback you guys have of areas that could be better represented in an inspection report is valuable to me.
1: Yeah, those are great points. And I'll add one thing to that. You know, anybody listening to this that orders their next inspection report, don't let that scare you. I know we've had clients in the past that have freaked out, you know, with just the number of items and some of the items that were in that inspection report. But when you really stop to look at actually what is there and what needs to be done and really the you know the amount of effort or cost to cure that stuff it was just really a long punch list of very small minor items that were just very easy to clean up and so i think you need to have the expectation that stuff will come back and then you just need to be objective and unemotional looking at it and going through it like a punch list and determining what needs to be done. Again, you know, going back to what I like to call the must be done, should be done and could be done stuff and just be objective and reasonable about it. And if you do that, then there's no fear. It's really a tool, it becomes a powerful tool so you know what you're getting and you have an expectation of what things might cost you in the future or maybe better yet, what you should be budgeting for years down the road in terms of the condition of that property and what's inside it. It's kind of like to me, if you go to the doctor's office and you
0: get a full blood workup on everything that they could possibly test for, and then they just handed you the lab sheet with all the numbers on it, all the explanation of each little thing, and you try to interpret that yourself. It looks overwhelming. It looks scary. It looks basically like you're probably dying tomorrow. But if you have a doctor or if you have a medical professional, someone that deals with this all the time, they're going to be able to weed through that. A a real estate professional like yourself... They're going to be able to weed through these things and say, hey, this is important. Nope, that thing is important. Hey, that's good to have, actually. So you're in good shape there, you know, to kind of help explain it and break it down in a way that people understand it better.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not rocket science. It's just a matter of being smart about it and, and just handling it like a pro. Yep, And, you know, we're here to help you, too. I mean, if you have a hard time understanding the inspection report or interpreting it or what to do, what your next step is, you know, that's what Nate is here for and the rest of our team. So we're going to support you on that. That should never be an issue or cause for fear or alarm. Well, guys, I appreciate you taking the time. Nate, thanks for joining me on this podcast episode And Mark, why don't you share with our listeners where they can reach you, where they can find you, phone number, website, whatever you want to plug here. And we'll also put that in the show notes.
0: Sure. So again, my name is Mark Rojek with Rojek Home Services. We service the Chicago metro area. Um, We cover pretty wide expanse for most of our clients just because the type of thing people that we work with are a lot of investors that come from all over. So we don't try to limit it to a particular block or neighborhood. The phone number to talk to us, get a hold of us, book inspections is 815-255-4988. And we can be found online at rojekhomeservices.com, which is
1: R-O-J-E-K, homeservices.com. Perfect. Sounds good. Well, guys, thank you for taking the time. This has been a great episode. I'm sure a lot of people will find value in it. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Thanks. I hope this episode was helpful for you. If you have any questions, just be sure to reach out to my team or if you have a question specifically for Mark, then uh, just reach out to him. There's contact information in the show notes. Remember to subscribe if you haven't done so already. Thank you for listening and we will see you all on our next episode.